Good to see everyone tonight. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 38? Now, last week in chapter 37, we were introduced to Joseph. And uh, we found out as the chapter ended that Joseph was sold by his brothers to some Ishmaelites who were on their way to Egypt. And now chapter 38, the story shifts from Joseph to Judah, Jacob's fourth oldest son. And it may seem odd to us that the Holy Spirit kind of breaks up the story of Joseph just when it was starting to get interesting, too, um, by inserting this parenthetical account of a sordid, uh, immoral story of Judah and his daughter-in-law Tamar. But as much as we admire Joseph uh, as a young man of character and courage, it's really through Judah and Tamar that Jesus would eventually be born, not through Joseph. That makes chapter 38 a critical chapter to the story of redemption. But this whole chapter served to magnify God's grace, especially when you remember that in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the most important genealogy ever written, four women appear excluding Mary, of course. Four women appear. Three of them were immoral. All right, We have uh, Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, and the other one was Ruth the Moabitess. And uh, even to include women in a, ma- in a man's genealogy was, uh, was really very rare, but to include women who were, well, kind of of ill repute for the most part, that was unheard of. It was just a total demonstration of God's grace. So, verse 1, it says, It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Now, you remember from last week's study that Judah was the mastermind behind selling Joseph into slavery. Uh, He was the one that came up with that idea. You know, let's make some money off this deal. Don't just leave him in the pit to die. Let's pull him out and sell him into slavery. We make a few bucks on the deal. So, Judah was the mastermind behind that. And maybe now... His conscience is bothering him a little bit. I mean, uh, it's probably hard to see his dad day after day after day mourning the loss of Joseph. Jacob thinks he's dead, of course. We know he's not. But, you know, maybe Judah just watching his dad day after day weeping and mourning and not getting past this thing at all, maybe he was a little more than he could handle. So he decides to take a little break from the family and goes to, uh, I guess, a buddy that he knew in the land of Canaan named Hira. Verse 2, and Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her. Now, Shua had a daughter that Judah saw. He fell for her, and he married her and went into her, verse 3. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Chizib when she bore him. Now, Judah wasn't a very godly man. And he proved it by marrying a pagan Canaanite woman. You remember how his great-grandfather Abraham made sure that his son Isaac, and Isaac, his grandfather, made sure that his son Jacob, which was Judah's dad, of course, that they didn't choose women from among the Canaanites that they went to where the family was from to choose wives, uh, you know, that were of the messianic line, basically, uh, wives who were not going to bring immorality and idolatry into the family. But Judah, it seems like Samson, who would come years after him, 
was driven purely by his fleshly desires. I mean, I think it was totally the lust of the lust of the eyes that really caused him to marry this gal. And she had a very negative influence on how his sons and her sons turned out. That's why God says, don't be unequally yoked to an unbeliever. You know, we think we know so much better than God at times, what's best for us. And God says, no, this is what I want you to do because there'll be repercussions. There'll be consequences that I want to spare you from. And uh, Judah went ahead and married an unbelieving gal, and it was a disaster for his family. But verse 6, then Judah took a wife for Ur. So obviously now years have passed. He took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. Now, many people have a problem with a God that judges sinners. A God of love, they like, they'll even tolerate. But really not a God who uh, judges sin. That's because we're living at a time when people are living in great sin. Our nation is in a real black period uh, right now where sin seems to be abounding, where people are calling good evil and evil good. And uh, when you live in a society like that, a lot of people don't want to do away with God. They still want to have God in a sense and then be spiritual in that regard. But they have to then change him into a God that's made after their image and their likeness, which means he's a God that's up there, a benevolent grandfatherly type of figure who uh, smiles uh, upon them constantly and, uh, and basically blesses their lives and shows them mercy and all kinds of good things. But a God who doesn't judge sin. In fact, some people don't even believe there is such a thing as sin today. So if you want to live in sin, either you have to change God into something other than what he is, or you have to do away with him altogether. And that's what we see in the rise of neo-atheism today. It's just man's endeavor to get rid of God so that man can live in sin with impunity. So God killed this young guy. We don't know what he was into. We don't know the extent of his wickedness. All we know is that he was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. Verse 8, And Judah said to Onan, that would be his second son now, Go into your brother's wife and marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. Now guys, this is the first mention of this practice in the Bible, a practice that uh, came to be known as the custom of the Leverite, from the Latin levir, which means husband's brother. And according to the custom of that day, if an older brother died without having any children, it was the responsibility of the next oldest brother to marry his widow and raise up a child that would be his heir. Okay, the idea was that uh, these two would marry, and uh, the first child they had, uh, the first son would be the son of his dead brother. And what that would do is it would allow his name to continue on, and also the son would inherit his father's wealth, everything that belonged to his dad, he would inherit. And so it was a way to perpetuate a family um, when somebody had died without children. Eventually, God incorporated this practice into the Mosaic Law. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 10. But verse 9, But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he omitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother, and the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. Look, the Hebrew says, whenever, whenever he went into his brother's wife, he refused to impregnate her, but instead spilled his sperm on the ground. 
So he used Tamar for pleasure, but didn't allow her to get pregnant because he didn't want to father a child that would become his brother's heir. Why? Why? Well, Ur was the firstborn, and therefore the blessing of the firstborn belonged to him. That would be a double portion of his father's inheritance. That was always the blessing of the firstborn. Firstborn always got a double portion of the inheritance. Onan didn't want to give his brother an heir because then the firstborn blessing would pass on to that son and not on to Onan, who was next in line. You understand? I mean, now that Ur had died, Onan was next in line to inherit the double portion. But if he raised up a son uh, through Ur's widow, that son would take his father's place, and he would then be the recipient of the double portion. So he was so selfish and wicked that he used Tamar for pleasure, but wouldn't allow her to get pregnant because he didn't want an heir to his brother's name that would take away some inheritance from him. Now, that was so wicked, so selfish, so carnal, that God wound up killing Onan also. Now, let me just stop and insert this, okay? Some have used this passage to prove that birth control is a sin. This is where they go. It's one of the things they look. Right here, this proves birth control is a sin. Um, that really isn't the point of this passage. Uh, so, you know, I don't see it that way. I mean, some people do, but I don't see that's the point God was making. That's not why God killed Onan. Uh, it was for what we had just talked about. Now, at this point, Tamar should have been given to Judah's third son, Shelah, which Judah actually acknowledged in verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now, Judah gives Tamar the impression that he is going to do the right thing and give Sheila to her uh, to be her husband. Uh, he's just too young right now. Maybe the kid's seven years old and, you know, some time has to pass, obviously, before he's old enough to get married. So, you know, he tells her, look, I'm going to make it right by you, but, you know, Sheila's too young. Go back and live with your father for a while until he's old enough to get married, and I'll give them to you, or you to him, uh, in marriage. However, in his heart, he had no intention of doing so, because we read, he said in his heart, lest he also die like his brothers. Apparently, Judah blamed Tamar for the death of his sons instead of admitting that he and his pagan wife had raised these boys in a godless environment, which caused them to grow up as wicked men, living wicked lives, and brought the judgment of God upon them at one point. You know, it's easier just to blame others for our sins and failings. Instead of owning up to the fact that his sons turned out exactly the way he had raised them without God, he wants to somehow blame Tamar for their deaths, as if it was her fault that Ur was wicked and Onan uh, did a wicked thing as well. And, but he blames Tamar, and, uh, but at this point, Tamar believes her father-in-law that he's going to do good by her and give uh, Sheila to her as a husband. And so until he's ready to get married, she goes back and lives uh, at her father's house. Verse 12, now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. It says in the process of time, which means now several years have passed, maybe 10 years. And during that time, Judah's wife died. Now, I personally believe that was the mercy of God in operation. 
This woman had corrupted this family with her pagan ways. And Judah allowed it. I'm not saying that you know he's innocent by any means. But now she's gone. And uh, Judah was still relatively a young man, maybe about 40 years of age. And Sheila, his son, was now maybe 16 or 17 years old. And Tamar expects her father-in-law to keep his word and uh, give her to Sheila as his wife. However, as time goes on, it's becoming more and more apparent that uh, Judah has no intention of doing this, which causes Tamar at one point to take matters into her own hands. And she decides to get pregnant by her father-in-law himself. Now, guys, stay with me for a second. This tells me that it wasn't really a husband that Tamar was after. I mean, I'm sure she wanted to get married again, but what she really wanted was a child. And not just any child, a child that would be in the Messianic line. You see, I believe that Tamar had come to embrace the Messianic promise that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Judah. I believe that from hanging around the family, and of course, uh, you know, they were always talking about what God had done uh, you know, in their lives, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on, all the promises that God had given to him that someday a Redeemer, a Messiah would come through this family and uh, would actually be the Savior of the world. And I think Tamar embraced that. I think she embraced it so much she was willing to wait for Shua to grow up so she could marry him and maybe raise up a child that would be the Messiah or in the lineage of the Messiah. Now, we don't approve of her methods, obviously, uh, even if we understand her motives. When she realized that her father-in-law had not been honest with her and that she wasn't going to be given to Shua uh, as uh, his wife, she decides, well, I have stuck around in this family. I have been patient. I want to be involved in this promise that God has made to this family. So now she says, well, if Shua is not going to give me a child, I'm going to get a child from my father-in-law himself. Verse 13, and it was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to share his sheep. Remember who else went to Timnah? Samson, where he met a gal that didn't work out so well for him. I don't know, this was a rough place, this Timnah. Okay, you want to stay away from there if you don't want to get messed up with the wrong person. But she heard that her father-in-law was going up to Timnah to share his sheep. And she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself, that would be in uh, the clothing of a harlot, and she sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah, for she saw that Sheila was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. Now, apparently Tamar knew her father-in-law well enough to know that after the proper amount of time had passed for him to grieve the death of his wife, it was usually a week, sometimes even as long as a month, But after he had waited that time, the grieving period out, she knew that he would then be ready for some female companionship. She also knew that during the sheep-shearing time, and this was a a time each year that was a festive party time, basically, she knew the prostitutes would be out selling their services during this time because, you know, people were in a good mood, guys were in a good mood, money was flowing because, you know, sheep were being sheared, the wool was being sold. You know, it it was a festive time. And so, you know, that she, she saw that uh, or knew that these prostitutes would be out selling their services. So when she heard her father-in-law had gone up to Timnah, she disguised herself as a prostitute in the hopes that she would become pregnant by him. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. 
And he turned to her by the way and said, Please, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, Will you give me a pledge to you send it? I mean, you know, what do you think? I just fell off the turnip truck? I mean, you know, you're going to come into me. You know, what am I I'm supposed to let you do, do that with the promise you're going to send a goat down the road? No, I need a pledge, something I can hang on to to make sure you're going to make good on this promise. Then he said, verse 18, what pledge shall I give you? So she said, your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. So she did all this on the snake. And after she had uh, been impregnated by her father-in-law, then she goes back home and puts on the clothes of her widowhood. In other words, she's wearing black still and so on. And um, now this whole thing is going to begin to unfold. Now this signet was like a signet ring, only it was not a ring. It was worn around the neck uh, on a decorative cord. The signet uh, contained um, an engraved image or symbol that as some one uh, author said, declared uh, the individual and corporate identity of the person. In other words, it was used for business transactions. It became your corporate seal in a sense. I mean, the family business, buying and selling of animals or commerce, they would use this signet ring to press into soft wax or something that would harden, that would indicate you had purchased that property if they had to ship it somewhere or whatever. But today we would say, well, he left her his driver's license or his social security card. Something that identified him, was unique to him, which is what this signet cord and, of course, his staff represented. Verse 20, And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adullamite. He didn't want to go back there. I mean, you don't want to be seen with a harlot if you're trying to be a respectable guy. All right? So he says to his friend, Look, will you go back and bring the goat and get my stuff? Okay? I uh, sent this friend, the Adullamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, There is no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also the men of the place said, There was, there was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, Let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. I think the boat has sailed on that. But he, what he's saying is, lest this thing become public. He wants to keep it quiet, Okay. He said, oh, well, just let her keep the stuff. I don't want to make a big deal out of it, you know, and start asking around everybody where the, she is because it will just spread that I've done this thing. And uh, let her just keep the stuff. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. Verse 24. And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. We can't have this kind of sin in this place. What a hypocrite. What a hypocrite. Look, she was still technically engaged to Sheila, even though Judah had no intention of giving her to him in marriage, but it gave him the legal grounds for her execution, adultery. But this decision on his part to have her killed would also serve to alleviate his guilt in a couple of ways. First of all, it would alleviate the guilt of his immorality by making him feel like a righteous guy, okay? 
I mean, you know, he's burning with, with righteous indignation, which makes him, which compensates for his feelings of guilt for being so immoral with a prostitute. Um, I have discovered over the years that those people who are very legalistic, it usually compensates for a lot of carnality. Of course, they come across very spiritual. I knew a pastor uh, years ago who was of this type of person. He uh, was very black and white, very sure of himself on, on, on all kinds of issues, that this was right, that was wrong. No gray areas. He's very, very kind of a legalistic guy, but he came across as somebody who was very committed to the Lord, just really, you know, committed, and everything was pretty clear to him what was right and wrong. Come to find out some years later that actually he was a very carnal man and uh, had been cheating on his wife in some very distasteful ways. You know, the Lord really showed me that, you know, oftentimes people who are very legalistic come across so righteous. Oh, here's Judah burning with righteous indignation, which is really his way of compensating for his feelings of guilt over his immorality. So first of all, it would alleviate his guilty conscience about sleeping with this prostitute. But secondly, killing Tamar would also take away the guilt he was feeling for not keeping his promise to her, to give her to his son as a wife. To get rid of her, of course, would be to get rid of the guilt. So I think he was kind of happy that this happened so he could just get this off, you know, <laughs> off his mind. Verse 25, when she was brought out, because she's playing it cool, though. Okay, she's playing it cool. He's like, bring her out here and let's burn her at the stake. So when she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law saying, by the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, please determine whose these are, the signet and cord and staff. Well, Judah knew he had been made. And uh, he acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Sheila, my son, and he never knew her again. In other words, he never had sexual relations with her ever again. Verse 27, Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that, behold, twins were in her womb. You know, that twins ran in the family, and so she's now um, pregnant with twins. And so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, this one came out first. So forget a breech birth. This kid's coming out sideways, all right? Sticks his hand out. The midwife wraps the thread around it because the firstborn was very important. They wanted to make sure that they did pronounce the right child the firstborn because, again, there's a lot of prestige and things, blessings that went along with that. Well, the midwife no sooner ties a, a ribbon or a, a, a thread onto this child's hand that he pulls his hand back in and lo and behold his brother comes out first and she's shocked all right uh you know verse 29 it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly i would imagine so and she said how did you break through this breach be upon you it's not my fault that you know i had the right kid tagged for the firstborn now here you've stolen that by coming out First, it's not my fault, this breach be upon you. Therefore, they called his name Perez, which means breach or to break out. Verse 30, After, afterward his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread in his hand, and his name was called Zerah. When you go and read the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1, you will see that Perez 
uh, is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And again, I just see in these stories the grace of God being demonstrated. Right here, I mean, you had a, a children born from a very immoral situation, okay? You know, some people think that, um, you know, if a woman gives birth out of wedlock, you know, has had a, a immoral relationship with a guy and she's pregnant and she gives birth, you know, there are some Christians who want to look down on that child, you know, who want to look at the child as something unclean or ungodly. That, that's, that's not even fair, okay? But God doesn't see it that way. God blesses this child by putting him into the most important genealogy in the history of mankind. He becomes a descendant of Jesus Christ. And again, it just proves that God is no respecter of persons. And that all are welcome into his family regardless of their background or past sins. And I do believe one other thing before I move on. I believe that um, the main point of this chapter is to show us that even in spite of all the moral failings and uh, disobediences on the part of God's people, this was the messianic line now, all right? Uh, you know, as we can see this, it, these people are by no means perfect. And yet God in his sovereignty uh, still kept his purposes. Uh, Jesus eventually was born, the Messiah. And it just goes to show us that, you know, uh, even though we blow it, we make our mistakes and we um, give in to sin in certain areas of disobedience that, you know, it doesn't destroy the plan of God. God's purposes are going to be fulfilled. It's just good for us to know that because sometimes we think, oh, I did it. I blew it. God can never use me now. That's not true. Peter felt that way after he denied the Lord three times. And after Jesus rose from the dead, he restored Peter, and Peter's best days of ministry were yet future. But at the time, Peter thought, that's it. I'm done. He could never forgive me, let alone use me ever again. And uh, that, that wasn't true at all. Now, the narrative shifts back to the story of Joseph in chapter 39, who I've got to tell you, by comparison, serves as a stark contrast to Judah and even the rest of his immoral cutthroat brothers, all except Benny. Benny was a good kid, I guess. He, he never caused any problems. Um, verse 1. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Last, last we saw in chapter 37, he had been sold to some Ishmaelite traders, and uh, they were on their way to Egypt uh, to sell Joseph, and so now he's in Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Now, the word officer in the Hebrew means eunuch, eunuch, a man incapable. A eunuch was a person incapable of having sexual relations with a woman. Sometimes they were born that way, but most of the time, if you were a top officer like he was in Pharaoh's uh, cabinet, okay, uh, oftentimes a top officer in the cabinet of a king was purposely turned into a eunuch because that would guarantee this person had their life was wholly devoted to the king. Now, because Potiphar was a eunuch, it could explain why his wife wanted so badly to get Joseph in bed. And I don't personally believe this was the first person she seduced, uh, as we're going to see. I think this was a pattern in her life. But we pick it up in verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. And he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, 
And I don't know, think he knew the Lord, but he knew that Joseph was a God-fearing man. Whoever his God was, his God blessed him. So his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. And then he made him overseer of his house and all that he had he put under his authority. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand and did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now let me just stop there. Let's understand the scene here. Joseph, when he got down to Egypt, was only about 17 years old. He was a slave in a foreign land without friends or family to encourage him. He didn't know the culture, couldn't speak the language. Can you imagine how alone this young guy felt? He's only a teenager. And during this ordeal that covered 13 years before Joseph became prime minister of Egypt, we never see him complain or feel sorry for himself at any time. Nor do we see him try to escape, which no doubt he was smart enough to do if he wanted to. He seems to have just accepted the circumstances he was in as being ordained by God. And he served Potiphar as unto the Lord, trusting that God had a purpose in all of it for his life. In fact, instead of complaining and fighting against the circumstances, he throws himself into serving Potiphar with such dedication and hard work that as we just read, everything he is given to do, God blesses and just increases. I mean, everything this kid touches. I'm sure he didn't give him everything right away, but, you know, he puts him in charge of this one little job, and it prospers. Well, go over here and take care of these flocks. He goes over there, and boy, they prosper. Everything this kid puts his hand to just blossoms. And Potiphar, not a dummy, no doubt, he says, look, everything this kid touches, he excels at. I'm going to just make a manager, steward, overseer over my entire estate, is the idea. In fact, we read that Potiphar trusted Joseph so much, he didn't even bother to keep an eye on this guy. Didn't, you know, check the books, see what's going on. He so trusted Joseph because Joseph presented himself as such a man of character, so trustworthy. Potiphar, after a while, said, I don't even have to keep an eye on this guy. In fact, he let Joseph take care of all of his household affairs so much so that he didn't even know what was going on, how many sheep, goats, livestock he had, uh, all he knew was what was the food was placed in front of him at every meal. That's all he knew. Just the bread that was put before him. Because Joseph was so great and so trustworthy. Verse 6, at the very end. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, lie with me. Now, Egyptian women were notoriously immoral. And here we have a gal that's a cougar. Okay, She's uh, an ancient cougar going after the young guy. Um, of course, we have a lot of cougars in our society today. But, you know, the guys have been doing that with the young gals for many years, right? We just live in a very immoral time. But from what I understand, um, it was in Egypt that eye makeup, perfumes, and lipsticks were invented for the purpose of making women look seductive. It's just part of the culture. Also, I'm sure Potiphar's wife was very beautiful. I mean, powerful, wealthy men tend to attract beautiful women. If she wasn't beautiful, Satan couldn't have used her 
to tempt Joseph. That's why I know that she was a good-looking woman. She was no doubt beautiful. Verse 8, she wants him to lie with her, but he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. Now let's not forget Joseph by this time is in his early 20s and at the peak of sexual desire, the peak of his sex drive he was dealing with at this time. All right, He's a long way from home. And he's being seduced every day by a very powerful, very beautiful, very uh, desirable woman who could make her break his whole career in Potiphar's service, being Potiphar's wife. Be kind of like the uh, boss of your company, his wife, coming on to you and trying to seduce you. And of course, to say no, well, she could ruin you uh, with her husband. Uh, but to say yes, that wouldn't be good either. So... It's kind of the situation Joseph found himself in, uh, yet he, he maintains a proper perspective. And that is his appreciation toward his master for trusting him with everything he owns. So he appreciated Potiphar. He, he, he recognized, he acknowledged this man had taken a big chance to put everything into the hands of a Hebrew slave, and he appreciated that. And also, he regarded his responsibility and commitment toward his God. So his appreciation toward his master and his responsibility and commitment toward his God was what caused Joseph to not want to sin uh, with this woman. Now, guys, let me just say this. Many young Christian men fall to the advances of a beautiful woman for these very reasons. Number one, they don't take their blessings into account. They don't uh, consider the consequences of what their actions are going to bring into their lives, and they're not as committed to God as they should be. In fact, they're more committed to satisfying their sexual desires. See, here's the thing. And, you know, the psalmist said this. He said, what are the problems with unbelievers and why they get into sin? Yes, they have no fear of God in their, in their eyes. That's true. But why is that? Because they don't look down the road at the consequences. They only live in the moment. They're only interested in gratifying their desire for the moment. They don't look down the road. Because if they did and they look down the road and say, well, you know, is a few minutes of pleasure gonna be worth losing my family my marriage my ministry etc i mean don't i appreciate all that god has given to me he's blessed me in so many different ways remember when david sinned with bathsheba and nathan finally god sent nathan to him the prophet and confronted him and what did god say through the prophet nathan it's a heartbreaking thing the lord is lamenting he says david didn't i take you from your father's sheepfold and I made you, you know, king of all of my people. I gave you a palace and great wealth, and I would have given you more if you had only asked me. Why have you hurt my heart by doing this sin? You know, if we would just stop and say, God has been so good to me. He has given me so much. How can I ever think of doing anything that would dishonor him, grieve his heart, and so on? Plus the consequences, it's... It's not worth dishonoring my God and, and bringing consequences into my life that 
Will I lose my marriage, my family, my ministry? Joseph didn't see it that way. Joseph didn't think these things were by any means worth uh, a few moments of pleasure. And so verse 11, but it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was inside that she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. Now I believe she set this up. She knew her husband was out of town in business and so she worked it out where all the other servants would be out of the house. Around the time Joseph would come in to do whatever he had to do there in the house. And uh, this way she would be alone with him and she could, you know, grab him and try to force the issue to make him lie with her. But I believe that Joseph had already purposed in his heart what he would do if she ever tried a stunt like this. He was going to run. He was going to run. He wasn't going to try to reason with her. He wasn't going to try to talk her out of it. He was just going to turn around and run. And that's what he did. A Puritan preacher said of this, he said, Joseph lost his coat but kept his character. Very true. Guys, let me just say this. The time to resist this kind of temptation isn't when it's standing right in front of you, but in your heart before it ever presents itself. Look, before that pretty gal or that good-looking guy starts to flirt with you at work, starts to come on to you in some way, before he or she ever starts making advances toward you, if you're going to be victorious over this kind of thing, because it's a very powerful the, the sex drive is at the very core of our being, in a sense. It, it defines us, in a sense. I mean, when a child is born, what is the first thing the doctor says? It is a boy. It is a girl. It's what defines us. Paul says every other sin is done outside the body. But sex, that's done to your own body. It's a very special kind of sin that brings with it very powerful temptations. And the only way you're going to have victory over someone trying to come on to you, somebody that's a good-looking guy or gal, to be victorious over that kind of temptation, you have to purpose in your heart, listen, in advance, how you're going to respond to it. If you wait till the temptation is standing in front of you to decide what you're going to do about it, you probably are not going to resist it. But godly people like Joseph, Godly people already understand that Satan will try to use that in their lives against them to destroy their marriage, their family, their walk with God, etc. So godly people purpose in their hearts before the temptation ever comes. If it does come, here's how I'm going to respond to it. I'm not going to be flattered by it. I'm not going to think on it. I'm going to run from it. That happens before the temptation ever comes. That's what Joseph did. I believe that was the secret to the success in the situation. He had already planned in advance if a woman ever propositioned him, uh, he was going to just run, take off. And his commitment was rooted in his relationship or his commitment to God. All this preparation of how he was going to handle the temptation was all rooted in his commitment to his God. How strong is your commitment to God? Because as strong as your commitment to God is, is going to be how strong your resistance against temptation toward evil is going to be. That's why you have to cultivate a good, strong walk with God now. The stronger your relationship with God, the less the devil is going to be able to tempt you to sin. But let me just say this. If a Christian falls into sexual sin, has an affair, it's not that God won't forgive them if they repent. But 
there are going to be repercussions and consequences that will affect that person probably the rest of their life. There's forgiveness with God. But again, I think of David when he sinned with Bathsheba. He finally repented. God forgave him. But David was never the same man. And I think a lot of it was because David couldn't forgive himself. You know, Paul the Apostle wrestled with feelings of guilt, I think, until the day he died. I know he knew he was forgiven for the way he persecuted the church before he got saved, thinking they were a cult, thinking he was doing God a service. He would hunt them down, pull them out of houses, consent to their deaths, because he thought he was doing God a service. And when he finally realized, as God, as the Lord showed him on the road to Damascus, that he was on the wrong team, fighting the wrong fight, that Jesus Christ and these Christians, well, that Jesus was the true Messiah, and the Christians were his people, well, Paul, of course, then submitted his life to Christ and became a Christian, but he never really forgave himself. Um, I think it always haunted him. That's why he called himself things like the chief of the sinners, you know. He knew God had forgiven him, but it still aided him, the things he did to God's people. David was the same way. God forgave him for his sin with Bathsheba. But even if you, when you start reading the Psalms that happened after, that he wrote after the fact, they're not the same as when he wrote before. Now, some of that was good because before, he said, you know, may God bless me according to my righteousness. Afterward, you know, he was a little more humble because he realized that he wasn't that righteous, all right? But even when Absalom rebelled against his dad, David seems to have taken a kind of a defeatist attitude, almost like, well, I'm getting what I deserve. No, just leave him alone. Let's just leave town kind of thing. So, you know, there is forgiveness, but I think that sometimes a person's life is never quite the same. Don't go there. Don't go there. Just stay faithful to God, all right? Put it in your heart to walk with God with all your might and uh, not go down that road at all. Well, so Joseph, she forced the issue, grabbed onto him. He wiggled out of his coat and ran for his life. As the old saying goes, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. So verse 13, and so it was when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them, saying, See, he, my husband, has brought in to us a Hebrew to mock us. Now, the Egyptians didn't really care for the Hebrews because they were shepherds. They kept sheep and livestock. The Egyptians looked down on shepherds. They thought that those who were shepherds were defiled. Therefore, they looked down on the Hebrews. And uh, here she says, look, he's brought this defiled Hebrew into my house to mock us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. So now her husband comes back into town. Verse 17, then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came into me to mock me. So it happened, as I lifted my voice and cried out, that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. Then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. Now, be careful. 
It says in verse 19, Potiphar's anger was aroused. It doesn't tell us to whom his anger was aroused against. Was it Joseph or was it his wife? I personally believe he was angry at his wife because he knew what kind of woman she was and he knew what kind of man Joseph was. He knew Joseph was a man of character. If he didn't believe that, he wouldn't have put him in charge of his whole household. He knew the kind of guy Joseph was, and he knew, no doubt, the character of his wife. This was probably not the first time something like this had had happened. No doubt things had gotten back to him. But what could he do? I mean, after all, she was his wife, Joseph was a slave, and Potiphar being a man of prominence in Pharaoh's court, he couldn't take a slave's side over his wife. That's why I believe he was so angry, because now he knew he was going to lose Joseph as the manager of his estate. He knew he had to do something to make it look like he was believing his wife, even though I don't think he did, or I don't really think he was believing her. But he had to do something to make it look like he believed her, so he had Joseph thrown in prison. Look, if he really believed that Joseph was guilty of trying to rape his wife, he would have had him killed on the spot. The fact that he has him thrown into prison indicates to me that he knew Joseph was innocent, but he had to do something to make it seem like he believed his wife. Now, guys... The blatant unfairness and injustice of all that has happened to Joseph up to this point really takes us back, doesn't it? It really bothers us. I mean, he serves his father faithfully, but his brothers hate him and sell him into slavery because God spoke to Joseph in a couple of dreams, right? God revealed something to Joseph that he shared with his brothers, something they didn't like at all made them hate him with a passion, and that was that in these dreams God showed him someday his whole family would bow down to him, that he would be an authority over them. But all he was doing was serving his dad with all his heart, and God spoke to him, gave him this revelation. His brothers hated him, sold him into slavery. Then he finds himself down in Egypt in the house of Potiphar as a slave. But um, even there he accepts the situation and works with all his might for his master Potiphar, always does the right thing. And now he's been accused of attempted rape by Potiphar's wife, and so now he finds himself in prison. It seems that every time Joseph begins to overcome his circumstances and stand on his feet, he's knocked down again. And yet, this was all part of God's plan for Joseph's life. He didn't know it at the time. Or let me just say this. I believe he did know it. I believe he did know it. And I'll show you why in a second. It was during his slavery and imprisonment that he learned endurance, perseverance, and, you know, to trust God's sovereignty. I mean, it was a time of character development and preparation for the work God eventually would use him for. You see, during these 13 years, 10 of which he worked in Potiphar's house, three of which he worked for the jailer in the prison, managing, now, first Potiphar's household and then uh, managing the prison, uh, it was during this time that he, he honed his management skills. See, all of this was a time of preparation. And God knew what he was doing, of course. God knew that when the time was right, he was going to elevate Joseph to work with Pharaoh. Pharaoh would make him actually the prime minister of Egypt. And he would manage the grain distribution program that would wind up saving countless lives from the famine that was coming. So God knew what he was doing. Of course, Joseph at the time didn't know exactly what God was up to, that there was a famine coming and God needed to prepare Joseph to to, uh, equip him how to be a manager of different uh, things, a skill that he would need later on when God finally did call him to the work that God had ordained for his life. 
Remember that when you're going through a difficult, prolonged time maybe, where it seems like every time you're trying to get up, you get knocked down again. And the tendency is to think God is against me. Will you fight the temptation to think that? Because that's exactly what God is trying to teach us through the life of Joseph that we shouldn't assume. It's not that God is against us. God is preparing us. Verse 21, but God was with Joseph. God had not forsaken him. He was with Joseph and showed him mercy. And he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Now, I got to tell you, Joseph is one of these guys in the Bible that I can't relate to, but I really admire. All right. I mean, I can't relate to Paul the Apostle, but I can. I relate more to Peter than to Paul. All right. But there are people in the scriptures like Joseph and Daniel and Paul and others that were so committed and so, you know, whatever they put their hand to, God seemed to bless. I just, I'm amazed at Joseph. Again, never do we hear him complain to God or turn against God. We never hear him say, as no doubt many of us would have said in this situation, if this is the way you're going to treat me for all the years of being faithful to you, I quit, you know, doesn't pay to serve God, as a lot of Christians would no doubt say if they found themselves going through uh, a similar situation. Joseph doesn't do that. Doesn't do that. Instead, he accepts his circumstances, no matter how difficult or unfair, and believes that God has a plan in it all. No doubt, guys, and don't miss this, because of the dreams God gave him of his future plans for Joseph's life. Now, don't miss that. It was because, and don't forget now, here's a guy, he didn't have a New Testament to turn to. He didn't have the book of Psalms or the Old Testament to, you know, he didn't have a church family that he could ask to pray with him. He was on his own. He didn't have, but he did know God. And God did reveal to Joseph something that Joseph clung to. It was a a promise given to him through a couple of dreams that God had plans for his life. And those plans would include his whole family would bow down at some point to honor him. Now, he's probably thinking, what in the world would cause my family? What is God going to do in my life that would cause me to be elevated, you know, in the eyes of my family where they would actually bow down to my authority? And no doubt he believed it would, it would um, go beyond his family too, whatever God had in mind for him. This is what he clung to. This is what sustained him through all these years where it looked like God had forsaken him he knew that God had made him a promise God was not through with him it was God's revelation we would say God's word to us is what we cling to during difficult times to know that look God is not done with me God has not forsaken me he's promised me he will never leave me nor forsake me I'm not doing anything wrong I'm not living in sin so therefore all these negative consequences God must be using to teach me Prepare me for what's coming. Here's something that you may not have remembered, but Psalm 105. Psalm 105. You say, well, are you sure about that? Uh, You sure that he was clinging to that? Uh, That's why he was hanging in there? Psalm 105. 
The psalmist is talking about the history of Israel, and at one point in verse 17, he talks about Joseph. God sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. See, the psalmist is telling us that Joseph was clinging to God's promise and it was God was testing him. Are you going to trust me? Are you going to believe me? Just like he says to us. We go through these difficult times and we have his word and his promises, but sometimes we don't really cling to those promises. We get our eyes off of God. We get our eyes onto the circumstance. And pretty soon we get, let the devil tell us that God has forsaken us or is against us. At those times, God is testing us to see if we really believe all that he's promised us, all that he said in his word. Now, many centuries later, Paul would write something that seems to have been in Joseph's heart during this period, where Paul says in Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. You know, evangelist Billy Graham illustrated this very principle through a story of a friend of his that was going through the Great Depression. Um, one author retells the story. He said, and I quote, A friend of his, a friend of Billy Graham's, had lost his job, all his wealth, his wife, and his house. But he was a believer in Jesus Christ, and he hung tight to his faith, even though he could see no purpose in what was happening and was greatly distressed by his circumstances. One day in the midst of his depression, he was wandering through the city and stopped to watch masons doing stonework on a huge church. One was chiseling a triangular piece of stone. What are you doing with that, he asked. The workman stopped and pointed to a tiny opening near the top of a nearly completed spire. See that little opening up there near the top of the spire, he said. Well, I'm shaping this down here so that it will fit in up there. Graham's friend said that tears filled his eyes as he walked away. For it seemed to him that God had spoken to him to say that he was shaping him for heaven through his earthly ordeal, end quote. And we have to remember that in everything we go through. We have to remember that, guys, if things get really rough in America, and especially for Christians, it's then we're going to be tested. Do we really trust God that he's with us? that even though we're going through difficult times, that he hasn't forsaken us? Are we going to cling to his promises or panic is the idea? Well, that's exactly what Joseph did. That's exactly what God was up to. He was shaping him through his situation for the work he was going to call him to in just a little while. This is the same with us, guys. I'll just close by reading you Romans 15, verse 4. Where Paul says, such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. These things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. And I think Joseph's life is one of my favorite stories of how that when a person, a child of God, goes through severe trials, again, when it looks like they've done everything right and, and nothing is going right, this is a great story to go to to take comfort and to know, look, Joseph was going through all these adversities. He was a godly man. And yet God was using it to prepare him. What is God preparing my life for that I'm going through these difficult circumstances? 
that such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. And the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. So hang on to that. We leave our hero at this point, and we will pick it up uh, next week, God willing, in chapter 40. Father, we thank you for the story of Joseph. We thank you, Lord, that through his life and what he went through, you are teaching us that just because we're going through a prolonged period of adversity, trials, etc., doesn't mean you've forsaken us. In fact, if we're walking with you in obedience, you're preparing us for a greater work. We must take that to heart. We must not look at our circumstances, but keep our eyes on you and on your promises and praise you even when we don't see things working out the way we had hoped. That's what faith is. It praises you for what is not yet seen, trusting that your word is true. Your promises are sure. And we're going to just trust you because we know that all things are working together for our good because we love you. We're the called according to your purposes. Give us grace, Lord, to just keep that in our hearts and uh, keep looking up. Father, we praise you. We thank you. We ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.